Hello, everyone. Today we have a really interesting podcast featuring Samuel Ecarlou, a professor of anthropology at McGill, Vincent Laliberté, psychiatrist and now an anthropology PhD student who worked with carriage drivers in Montreal. Uh, so just a, a word before we start, our recording room is right in the middle of Building 21 and we share a wall with one of the residences. So if you hear music or noises from the kitchen, uh, that's just all the, the life outside of the recording studio. Anyways, uh, without further ado, I uh, hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another V21 podcast. Uh, my name is Viola Rudier. I'm program assistant here at V21. And today I am joined by Claudia. Uh, Claudia, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, uh, I'm Claudia. I'm a program assistant at Building 21 and a PhD student in linguistics working on metaphor. Hi, I'm Samuel Ecollu, and I'm a professor in the Department of Anthropology at McGill. And would you like to say a word or two about your research? Yes, I am a medical and psychological anthropologist, and so I mostly study psychic life. Recently, I'm really every become interested in the relationship between uh, uh, psychic life and the non-conscious and uh, the digitalization of everyday life. So our relationship with digital technologies, and I also work with uh, a lot of psychoanalysis and uh, phenomenology as like um, uh, conceptual traditions, I guess. Uh, I'm Vincent Laliberté. I'm a PhD student in anthropology as well as a psychiatrist. And uh, would you like to say anything about your, your research or what you've been Certainly. Working? So uh, I did my research with the carriage drivers in Old Montreal. I became carriage driver myself for one year. Uh, I also did um, spend time with animal rights activists. And I'm interested in how the transformation of the city uh, shapes uh, the uh, lived experience of people. And uh, as a psychiatrist, I work uh, with homeless people uh, downtown, people experiencing homelessness. Interesting. Thank you. Um, and so today, uh, the kind of the theme of our episode is aliens in every sense of the word. Um, so uh, alien originally, I think our first, um, in English, the first time that we see the word was somewhere in the 13th century and it meant something that belongs to another uh, and by proxy something foreign, so something not from yourself but something from, from elsewhere. Uh, and then that stayed the principal definition for a long time until I think the 1950s when it started talk, uh, referring to extraterrestrials instead. Um, and so I guess uh, just one, one initial question uh, for everyone, if you hear just the word alien, what's the first thing that comes into your, your head? Um, so, for me, the first association that comes to mind is something being strange and something being slightly threatening. Interesting. Why the, why the threatening part? Well, I don't know. I, I need to ask my brain and get back to you about this. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it's hard to explain, I guess. Otherness can be... Threatening. It's just a, a, a very primal association that I have with um, the large concept of alien. Thank you. Vincent? The first thing that comes to my mind is the directly image of a UFO, uh, flying saucers, and, uh, and uh, let's say, uh, Hollywood movies. Uh, so my imaginary around the 
Alien is that's where it goes uh, first, let's say. Uh, for me, I mean, I've been thinking quite a bit maybe about this in psychoanalytic terms, I suppose. One of the first things that comes to mind uh, is alien object. So the first uh, association I have is uh, really about uh, objects that are external to us that could be either external but then alien objects uh, you know in psychoanalysis uh, are often uh, understood as something that is inside of us that kind of like participates to the production of our subjectivity and so a lot of times when I think about an alien I think about the alien inside <laughs> and the alien within so that's the first uh, association that I make. And yeah. was that always the first association you made or has that changed with your research? I mean, I suppose for the past maybe 15, 20 years, yes, that's the <laughs> first association. Then at another level, uh, alien and, or like, uh, you know, in Latin uh, means other, as you said, uh, like uh, the, the English etymology. But I have this vague memory about a professor explaining uh, Marx and theories of alienation and, and, and explaining how alienare in a way in Latin could also be like related to like selling something so externalizing something and then like uh, precisely like uh, making it available for someone else and so the second thing that i think about here uh, before like think about alien objects is about uh, processes of alienation what does it mean to uh, become an alien and be alien in a way which falls back on the question of the alien within that's interesting so to, to alienate something means to sell yeah. Right. To sell, so to turn something from yours to something that's that's other, that's external. Yeah. And then somehow the fact that it's other becomes like for Claudia and I think for a lot of other people menacing in a way yeah. or a little bit threatening. Yeah. Even though it's through our own actions that it got there in the first place. Yes. In a way, I think that this is the interesting thing about thinking about aliens and alienation is that uh, a lot of times it becomes threatening or scary also because we think that it's something that is external to us but a lot of times it is external but it's activating actually something that we have inside and so a lot of fears of the alien are also a projection of the alien inside that we don't want to accept or recognize so a lot of times the alien that is outside of us is actually you know reminding us that there is also an alien inside in a way I'm getting a little, a little abstract here, but um, that's what I think about in terms of free association. I have been, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. I've been a non-resident alien for uh, seven years in California. That's actually um, one of the the reasons I find it so interesting. The you know the the immigration status of being an alien, yeah. and the idea of an extraterrestrial. My, my dad uh, for the entire. My entire life until I moved to Canada was a resident alien uh, yeah. in New York, and I was always very proud of the fact that I was the daughter of an alien because I thought it was very yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I enjoyed telling people this just to see their reactions yeah. because that's n generally not the first thing people yeah. think of when they hear alien. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I guess one of the uh, follow-up question is, I, I suppose we've answered this to some extent, but Kind of what it says about at least North American society, because that's yeah. the only only country I know of that says uses the word alien as an immigration term. Uh, um, other countries might do this. I don't know um, what it means that we call a certain group of people by a term that is often considered vaguely threatening 
Do you have any thoughts on this? One? What do you think, Vincent? Also thinking about that, uh, your work with uh, people experiencing homelessness um, mm. in a way maybe could be interesting to think about. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, but I will let you uh, go on this one, uh, Samuel. I think it's like, uh, again, it's very important in processes, just like it's important in processes of the for formation of subjectivity to define what is other than yourself. Uh, in, uh, you know, in the constitutions of nation states, it becomes also fundamental to draw very specific lines uh, about what's you know, who's in and who's out. And I think especially if you think about North America or the United States where I've been a non-resident alien for uh, seven years where, you know, you're you're just like treated in, in very particular ways every time you cross the border, you know, a whole adventure can open up. Um, I think that uh, it, it, it really shows uh, the, the type of threat that uh, the outsiders constantly pose. And of course, like in this case being, an, you know, I was a non-resident alien, it was really clear that, the, that you're, you're like in this transitional state. I think uh, the threatening aspect that you're talking about uh, seems to me very important in the constitution of, like, of nation states that are fundamentally based on exclusion. That is, you need to exclude in order to define the borders of what's inside. And so it seems to me a classic example of how violent uh, processes of nation formations are. And I think that this violence is kept in place uh, also by the use of this term, which really defines the alien precisely as someone who does not belong to that type of uh, uh, cultural, you know, cultural setting or nation. I mean, I don't know. I'm not, but I say this uh, not as a political theorist. I mean, me, me I would simply say that uh, as subject, uh, we are so fundamentally shaped through our relations with other people that any kind of re experience of rejection is extreme, can be extremely distressing for people and it can be felt on the variety of level, including the way uh, people are called. So, so it, the impact can be huge, I would say. Mm -hmm. On, uh, like, this, the impact can be huge to an individual or to a society in general, or both? Um, well, I, I would say uh, both, but uh, when I was saying this, I meant for the people who are excluded in any way. For them, the experience can be uh, life-threatening. I think that in the, if I can say like in this logic of like inclusion, exclusion, this is why I really wanted to start talking about the alien within, because if you think about the alien in the, you know, but in the, the political sense, like if you think about the nation states, the, the, what the process here is the, the externalization or the identification of uh, something external to the core or the center of the nation, where actually the nation itself, you know, it is constituted by a whole series of aliens that constitute it. And so there is almost like this repression. And so the alien here, you know, it kind of represents the return of the repressed of the way in which nations are constituted. If you think about like the violent histories of the create that, that, that are, the background of the creation of like all nation states, including the United 
United States and Canada that are based on exclusion, violence, uh, genocidal violence, but at the same time the alien then is externalized and not recognized as being actually at the core of the nation state, but put on its borders. So in a way the alien fulfills a function of externalizing otherness uh, rather than recognizing that otherness is at the core of the formation of the state, but is put on its borders. I don't know if it makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. And wh why do you think nations tend to do that? Why do we need to have, a, have an, an external version of something that's at the core of the, of the nation? Well, I mean, in terms of like, you know, now I'm thinking more in terms of like subject formation, for example, which are processes that uh, is very similar to me because it's about the creation of borders. But for example, in the formation of uh, Western identity, Western perception of our body, uh, the idea uh, is that we are self-contained uh, autonomous entities and somehow the the, the, the myth at the core of the formation of Western subjectivity is that uh, we are, uh, you know, bounded unities and that we are not shaped by a relationship with others. So in a way, I think that this repression is also like a negation of the role of the other in the constitution of ourselves. And so then there is a necessity to keep the other other, to keep the alien alien. You know, aliens uh, in this case fulfill a fundamental role for us to be us, you know, also, uh, and I think that, that there is like display of repressions that is fundamental to maintain a certain form of uh, illusion of self-containment, of autonomy, of independence, uh, and more than anything else, uh, the illusion of being, you know, to have borders. You know, I'm talking about the body, but in this case, uh, we, can, we can talk also about the body of the nation in this sense. Does it make sense? Maybe I'm a little yeah. delirious. And perhaps we can also think of the figure of the scapegoat uh, mm -hmm. that exists in uh, ancient Greek cities in which uh, they would, uh, I read that they would randomly choose two persons that they would exclude and that this in some way or another would fulfill a psychological function in the group who would reunite uh, around this. So there's something uh, in this, what you said about the formation of the state made me talk about this uh, fundamental, uh, let's say, uh, law. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It makes me think about your work with carriage drivers in Montreal, where, you know, there is this this necessity also to create spheres of exclusion that then like kind of like fulfill a very specific function. You exclude in order to define what's inside, you know, so there is a constant uh, uh, work, uh, uh, you know, at the limits of the city where precisely in this case people experiencing homelessness or the carriage drivers you were working with become kind of like the leftovers, but leftovers are necessary to define the borders of what's inside, right? And so there is this relationship between the inside and the outside that I think uh, becomes fundamental to think about uh, uh, the alien, I guess, I don't know. One of the reasons that I, I thought of you and your research when I was uh, preparing for this talk and, and the podcast was, um, correct me if any of this is wrong because it's been a few years, but uh, when I was taking your medical anthropology class, I remember learning about a form of spirit possession in medical uh, operations um, where, if I remember correctly, people who had very little or no proper, in quotation mark, medical trainings were able to do pretty remarkable operations without any any particular equipment. And that this was the result of some kind of 
I don't know, spirit possession is the, the right word or term, but something along those lines. So first of all, could you talk about a little bit better than I just did about that? Uh, yes, that was like a long time ago. I remember that text. Uh, it was in 2018, so uh, it's a long time that I, I, don't, I don't read it. But like, I think that uh, that, that text, like many of the, the texts that we read uh, in my classes, uh, was really about... Uh, practices uh, of uh, spirit possession and but more than anything else the idea was uh, kind of like to ask uh, in which way or through which practices our body becomes available to be occupied or territorialized by an external spirit in this case uh, an alien in a way and so one of the the things maybe that you you are alluding to was uh, uh, there were type of like psychic surgery so a type of like intervention done on the body uh, while uh, the psychic surgeons surgeons were uh, possessed by external entities and yet again like here the, the idea of possession you know it makes us think that this is something that happens uh, you know uh, in other societies in non-western settings uh, just because of the way we have been trained to think about our relationship with external entities or with aliens with uh, external forces but we are constantly possessed and territorialized by forces that uh, uh, are other than us even today with digital technologies we are possessed by all sorts of uh, uh, spirits and algorithmic forces that determine our relationship with reality uh, it's just that a lot of times we think that this happens in another place and again it is a process of making it alien that is oh there is this alien place where people do psychic surgery but one of the points uh, for example, in that class was also to think about how uh, this is how the body operates. We are constantly uh, invaded by all sorts of forces, you know, affective forces, spiritic forces, even then, even when we don't recognize them as such, in a way. Uh, probably that wasn't your question, but... No, 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 no. <laughs> that, that, that fits in quite well. Because um, my, my, I guess my question was, these these external forces, whether it's uh, you know the the psychic surgeries or it's uh, our our phones or the digital yeah. space or whatever the external forces, um, and you actually mentioned the word when you were talking, but can these be considered aliens or at least alien as a, as an adjective? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in in a sense, uh, alien in the sense that uh, other than other than us in a way. But then again, to me, uh, when we think about forces that are other than us, it's also necessary to recognize that the, a form of otherness is at the core of the formation of our subjectivity. You know, the way we develop as people is by internalizing alien objects. The first, you know, the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan talks about the mirror stage, as you probably Vincent also know very well. And in the phase of the mirror stage, according to Lacan, when a child develops, seeing uh, you know their image in, uh, in the mirror that's one of um, foundational moment of the formation of the subjectivity of the child because he the child recognizes themselves in the mirror as a uni as a, an organic unity in, in a way and he identifies with his external image but this image is an alien the, the child is not his own image but then maybe there is a mother telling to the child look this is you and then the child maybe identifies with it this is the moment where i always 
say to my students uh, where a mother can take a shit in the child's unconscious you know oh look you look look you look fat just like your dad or whatever you know these are the moments in which the child sees an external images identifies with it i am this organism right but this organism is an inanimate alien image and that's where like your idea of your own self takes shape through an identification with an alien image already you know so so in my perspective here it's not mine but in psychoanalysis the idea is that you're already alien you know you're already shaped through and through by anotherness that is animating you so in a way if you think about spirit possession it's just like reactivating reanimating principles of subject formation we are already possessed by an alien it's just that we are repressing uh we're repressing it as alien by identifying external aliens i would say that in the clinical environment even in our modern world we still evoke things that are external to the encounter that are not spirit. But if I talk about the DSM and then the mental illness and then dopamine, I still evoke all those things, sometimes without thinking of how it will, let's say, act on the person with whom I'm working. So in a certain sense, um, perhaps it's good to, uh, to wonder about this, let's say, the, the, the symbolic power of all these uh, things we evoke in the clinic and how uh, other ways of doing, such as working with spirit, how it can perhaps uh, uh, give more hope to people or uh, create recovery in other means. So uh, these are things I like to think about, yes. Yeah, and in that sense, in the space of the clinic that you're talking about, uh, in a way, also talking about like, uh, you know, from dopamines to the type of like, uh, uh, pharmaceuticals uh, you're using it is still like the summoning of like the spirits of all like uh, that belong to the western cosmology you know yes and if i may continue on my what i was thinking i mean sometimes i wonder if, if we evoke a diagnosis that can sounds terrifying like schizophrenia if it may uh, sounds like a dead end for the person whereas uh, when i was uh, listening about uh, levi strauss and uh, talking about the cure of shaman which sounded much more like a journey in which the the symbols were leading the person to uh, to let's say fight difficulties demon and then end up uh, having grown from the experience so i wonder about what kind of stories we tell uh, what effect they produce on people yeah and it, maybe the stories we tell about aliens of all kinds precisely because there are stories that keep them outside of us maybe they lose one of the therapy most important therapeutic properties i think here in recognizing actually the alien within as a way to start right which i think it's also politically maybe a very interesting way to go i remember making a one of uh, a class after trump got elected i was teaching in berkeley an infuriating class the students were really upset with me and then the f because like the first thing i said like you know in this moment the most important thing is to try to understand and accept the fascist within <laughs> every single one of us rather than start thinking oh my god how, how could this happen and then externalizing the other you know, as something that uh, uh, <laughs> has nothing to do with you. Whereas, like, for me, everything starts from the recognition of uh, the alien within, which, you know, in the COVID uh, years, we have seen how easily it has been to identify certain sectors of the population as, you know, other than sensitive, sensible, sensed, 
uh, other than, you know, and then very easily when you start identifying the aliens, then those type of subjectivities become available to be dehumanized, for example. Like, you know, the way all sorts of non-vax whatever groups have been dehumanized in, in multiple ways. I don't know, if you as a psychiatrist, what do you think about it? Well, uh, me as a psychiatrist, I just noticed, and in a certain way, it was similar with the story of Carrier Driver, how easily uh, a group can become demonized and how, uh, um, how it's inside the, so many people to, uh, let's say, produce this uh, otherness and to exert a certain kind of uh, exclusion, violence. So um, um, let's say that the, the last year has shown to us how this is not something that happened so in some other countries, in some other time, but it can happen right here and with many people we care about. Yes, uh, so I just had a, a follow-up question uh, about this discussion. Namely, do you think that it is viable for a subjective consciousness to overcome this uh, impression of otherness and alienhood since it's so constitutive to forming a sense of self and an identity? Um, is it viable for an individual or for a society to try and overcome it? Or is it a kind of a tragic necessity for us to have? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, I think that the, 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 the things that I'm saying that are pretty disorganized, that I'm prepared to talk about this, but uh, um, it's more about... Uh, recognizing the role that alterity in this case uh, alien objects play in us and then once that recognition happened i think we would be a, like a radically different uh, type of society so i think it, rather than overcoming the alterity that constitutes us is more about like being in touch with it and then uh, kind of like letting it speak you know if i start uh, identifying the ways in which you know i don't know my father or all sorts of alien objects have shaped me then uh, I, I can develop a relationship with them you know for example after my my dad died for me it was fundamental to start developing a relationship with him to identify to an identification of the the ways in which he kept living in me in a way the way it was inside me and so it is more about like uh, in my opinion here uh, learning how to like talk to this uh, alterity and in a lot of rituals of spirit possession across different cultures we can also see like how through entering different states of trance or heightened affectation people have this capacity to let this otherness speak through them be them a spirit or a natural force or an ancestor for example so for me it's more about uh, kind of like being in touch with this other you know it would be a very different you know for example maybe i think that my neighbor is a fascist instead of like thinking that my neighbor is a fascist and uh, you know uh, not talking to him or being very worried or thinking that he's like a non-human alien maybe if i start recognizing the fascist that is inside me then uh, i will be able to start relating to him in a completely different way and be develop different neighborly practices and more generous uh, hermeneutics I think also that at an individual level, we can recognize that uh, the only way to grow and learn is to be confronted with what is different, what is other. If we stay with what is the same, we stay the same. 
So it can become a practice to put oneself in situation when we encounter sheer otherness. And in, in some way, that's what it is the, the beauty of anthropology. And, and that's what we develop as a, as a tool to put ourselves in all these situations where we are, uh, let's say, out of our comfort zone, faced with things that are not us, but then how to, how to metabolize this, how to write about this and how to grow uh, with this. Yes, absolutely. I think like to keep bumping against uh, what is alien, alien is one of the most important uh, processes uh, in anthropology, but also like in maybe in creating different types of neighborly practices, different type of societies, like to keep being exposed to what's alien, what's totally other, because at the end, the alien recalls also the idea that it's not only different, but it's just totally other. If you think about like the aliens in space, it's like a total otherness. And today we are so used to living in our what I call the psychofragile, psychofragile bubbles, and then the bubbles of psychofragility are often protected by a certain type of sameness that are based on the refusal of any alien object outside of us. And then you know a lot of my students are in this state where like any new information is rejected uh, uh, as you know, an information that could trouble their bubble in a way. So of course, like opening up and exposing yourself to aliens, all sorts of aliens, <laughs> of course, uh, uh, seems to be a very interesting practice. Uh, it's interesting how the concept of alienhood is also extremely relative, so that something is, can be alien for a certain time. And then, as you mentioned, uh, Samuele, um, the things that we are exposed to, we also interiorize. So something that once was alien can become part of us and part of our identity. So in a sense, it's also a concept that is constantly in flux. And I think one of our weaknesses is we tend to solidify uh, very much the concept of what is alien and perceive it as immutable. Um, but in reality, it is something that is very much up to change. Yes, absolutely. I guess this is a great uh, point. I guess that uh, the when the alien keeps staying the same, then you also keep staying the same, right? So when the other than you is always the same type of person, always the same type of population, always the same type of like profile, you know, to recall a, a, a more racialized, for example, cosmology, like uh, uh, then you always stay the same. Whereas like the, the, the capacity to keep incorporating and relating with different types of aliens I think also calls for or is what allows for you also to keep changing because uh, I think that to keep the aliens in place to keep them always being the same is what allows you to keep being you to resist the transformation what causes this fixedness in human nature is it an instinct for self-preservation well, I think I write a lot about this and uh, I, I trip a lot about this stuff and then especially through uh, Freud and the Freudian notion of the death drive. But like to make it very simple, I would say that uh, the most uh, the most immediate answers that I have is that uh, to 
let go of our attachment to our alien objects, to let go, you know, the things that define us both within and without may imply processes of desubjectification or processes of death. That is like if I start letting go the people that define who I am, if I start like, you know, loving the people that I used to hate and my hate defined who I am, uh, in a way I have to process a certain form of death. That is like I have to change and to change in one way or the other implies a process of, uh, of dying. You know, in order, it's like when you're in a relationship and uh, you break up after many years, then a part of you dies in a way. And so to me, like what does not allow us to, 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 to face these challenges is that we're really scared of letting go our attachment, both to the alien objects and to the things we love, because when we let go, we are forced to face a form of death. Perhaps it's also important to, to name uh, something like fear. We know that for children to explore uh, something other than them, they need to be in a certain position of uh, trust and uh, to feel at ease. And if there's a threat, they will, they will cling to their mother, perhaps. And I think um, we were talking about the various form of, uh, let's say, exclusion that we have seen in the last years. And it was also in the context of a massive fear where there's no more, uh, it's hard to be open to others and to uh, even have love when you're in, uh, in this position. So uh, uh, to summarize, I think that fear plays a, a role in our sometime or incap incapacity to be open to others. Yeah. You're making me think that uh, the relationship between our capacity to deal with, incorporate and play with alien objects and holding spaces. Mm. That is like uh, in this historical moment, maybe we don't have enough holding spaces that allow us to experiment with alien objects, with the, with the alien, right? And so precisely there is so much fear, but also because there is no holding space maybe where you can encounter. And what would it look like to play with the, the notion of alien, as you just said, like we, that we don't currently don't have enough space to, to do that, so we kind of stick with our current idea of the alien. What would experimenting with that look like? Well, that's a great question. One of the ways in which I do it, which is also related to what Vincent does, is to the you know is in the classroom. So this is what I do. I cannot uh, do anything uh, different. So in my little ways. Uh, to me in the classroom, uh, the classroom space is the creation of a holding space where students, uh, precisely because they start trusting their teachers in a way, they also like start letting go a little bit of their own attachments and this allows for a lot of play and in this case the alien object I try to introduce them to or scare them with is concepts, right? The, the concept that may trouble their own understanding of themselves, their subjectivity, their perception. I work a lot with perception. Uh, and so for example, to do this in a class means to create like safe spaces where the student is both you know stimulated and excited but also like uh, you know progressively becomes available to encounter something that is absolutely other than what they're used to so in my way it's more through education that i do it but it could be done in multiple ways like in therapeutic spaces i think uh, like vincent in uh, neighborly practices for example uh you know as i keep talking about this imaginary fascist neighbor just because i think that is through also conviviality and coexistence in spaces that are shared. So maybe holding space, it's not only a metaphorical space, but maybe it's also like a shared space where you're confronted with diversity. And in urban spaces, usually alien objects like alien 
people are ejected from those spaces. This is the whole logic of, you know, from gentrification to social, you know, social exclusion also works through uh, a mapping of that exclusion within urban spaces, as uh, Vesson's work shows. Yes, uh, if I can continue on this, I would say that I've been interested in the way uh, what is actually available things in the environment can uh, create or um, not create rela relations. So if we only meet people through social media, I think it would be much more easier to be in all kind of logic of exclusion. But if we meet people in certain space with certain things, with for example, with an animal or a horse, then it, it kind of creates relation. Perhaps it allows us to be open to others in a way that doesn't feel threatening because there is a, we are in, inter, in interaction in a playful way with other things. Yeah. Um, it is really interesting, I find, also how much of a role trust plays in these spaces. And uh, I found it very insightful when someone you mentioned fear because uh, one of the reasons, I guess, that otherness is inherently threatening is because it is unknown, so it is unpredictable, and things which are unpredictable are potential threats, and this is uh, very much motivated by, by evolution. So um, it's not enough to just be confronted with otherness, but there also needs to be some form of encouraged trust. Does this trust have to be placed in the, the alien, whatever form it is? Or a non-alien who then, like in your example, Vincent, um, the child that's scared of something will cling to its mother. And then if the mother says, no, no, it's all right, don't worry about it, then the child might fear the alien less. So is the trust in question being placed in the alien saying, okay, maybe this isn't as bad as I think it is? Or is it trusting someone else to tell it that the alien is not as threatening as it might be? So, I mean... What I, would, what I would like to emphasize is that often we think of this situation in very abstract terms, whereas in fact, the, the whole context in which encounters take place is so important. What are we, do we have a common thing to do, for example, then people can ally pretty rapidly? Or, or do we have absolutely nothing to do because we're just thinking about uh, our own individual and then everybody else's competition? So, so, uh, so what are occurring in situation in space matters and a lot. Yeah. It's interesting, uh, uh, you know, that this question is interesting in a way it is about trust, but I really like the idea of thinking about environments, right? We are right now living in a world where environments are curated for, for us, uh, mostly by predictive processing. And so, you know, we were talking about predictions and anticipation. And so the type of temporality we're getting used to is to be always anticipated. You know, when, when you're uh, on TikTok or Netflix, you are what you will have been in 0 0.2 seconds, because this is what, you know, the feed is going to get, is going to give you not what you want now, but you, what you will have wanted. And so this type of prediction kind of like creates, uh, you know, the feeling of being in a safe environment because you are fed only sameness. You know, you are fed what you already want. Whatever Spotify gives me, I already like. You know, I never am fed a song by Spotify that I don't like, which 
you know, creates this bubble of sameness. So it's an infrastructure rather than only like trusting one person or the other. This infrastructure does not allow me to encounter something new. This is why sometimes with Spotify, I try to mess up the algorithm as much as I can in order to kind of have the algorithm offer me something new, something that I don't know, something that comes from nowhere. And so I think that the problem here is infrastructural. We don't have infrastructures that allow for the discovery, the safe discovery of like, alien spaces and then i think that is not all is if we think about the mother that allows the kid to explore you know with like the classic theory of safe attachment then the mother is providing an environment and i think education can provide this environment different types of media can provide this environment so i think it's about ecologies and environments even more than just a person that can be trusted or not and going back to your point viola um perhaps cities could also offer more of these environments and this is also one of the reasons that I like going downtown where it's one of the few places where you can see such a diversity of people from people experiencing homelessness to people who look very well off um, so yeah having those spaces and cities would also be very beneficial and what what exactly would be beneficial? Like, what do we gain from accepting the alien or at least entertaining the notion of alien rather than shutting it down immediately? I think that in this sense, the example you gave of going downtown and seeing the, the wide range of uh, people and situation, and you mentioned people that are facing homelessness, and in a way it can certainly make you... Uh, it can kind of broaden your range of concern and perhaps make you uh, another kind of citizen because uh, you see actual, uh, actually what is going on in the city instead of what is provided to you by, uh, by screens in your own place. So it can perhaps broaden, let's say, the range of what needs to be done in a certain way and how to be of help. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, this is a great point. I, I think that... Um, to answer to to follow on your on your question about like what do we gain from it to become more available to aliens and i think the first thing that comes to mind for me it's violence and aggression that is like the type of world we live into where you know a an extremely polarized response of like users is becoming more and more common to become somehow familiar with alien objects i think like lowers the anxiety lowers the fear and at the same time it lowers the aggression because like when an alien object is perceived as a threat to your existence then the reaction most of the times is violent is a violent aggression that kind of like tries to anticipate the aggression that you think you're gonna get in a way and so like not to feel threatened also may start like curating or developing responses that are much less aggressive and much less violent so i think that this uh, uh, what i'm saying is very much related to developing less violent responses to what is other than us yeah that is great and much needed i think nowadays um i was gonna add something very much in line with what you said Vincent, about um broadening our perspectives and also maybe to some extent our consciousness and this reminded me of a philosopher i read uh called philip wheelwright uh and he wrote about a lot of things a metaphor too which is why i read from him but um, he also asked a question in one of his books 
um, what is fulfillment and joy, and he concluded that it must be some form of uninhibited exploration and discovering new thought patterns, whereas staying stuck inside the same thought patterns would result in unhappiness. So in a way, being confronted with alienhood could also indirectly contribute to a greater sense of fulfillment and joy. I mean, uh, I, I could not agree with this more, and I think that... Uh, I'm also a, a fan of psychoanalysis, and then you can explore the uh, alien within. And uh, it, I think it's a good way to even start every day to kind of be open to uh, whatever can arrive and to the experience that this day can offer. Yes, absolutely. I also really like this, uh, the, uh, this perspective, uh, uh, Claudia. I think it makes me think about the work of Sarah Hamed, who writes about what she calls happy objects. Uh, and then the type of feeling that you're describing is really different than, you know, the type of happiness we imagine when we obtain or like uh, when we get the type of objects we think are going to make us happy. Whereas like the type of feeling you're, you're, you're talking about is this type of joyful exploration that is somewhat objectless. It's not really, it's not object oriented. It's not about uh, getting something, getting that job, getting that object to feel happier, but rather to have like this joyful exploration that is joyful no matter the object, you know, in a way it's an exploration that creates space rather than, uh, you know, waiting for uh, the, the, the obtainment uh, of something in a way. Thank you everyone for joining. Claudia, thanks for calling in. Thank you, Claudia. Thank, Vanessa, you. thank you for joining. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sorry for the abrupt ending. Um, but to recap, we heard from Samuel Ecolu, anthropology professor at McGill, and Vincent Laliberté, psychiatrist and PhD student in anthropology. Thanks, as always, uh, to Claudia, my co-host, and thanks to all of our listeners. See you next time.